streaming live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first Nui Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I am your host and artistic director, Julie Nagam, and this is my fourth episode, Transmissions. I'm excited to share stories from artists and critical thinkers, Lisa Ravna Finbog, Mark Stoddard, Nora Banku, Ashley Mackenzie Barnes, and Ravi Jan. In our current climate, there is a global call out to open up the lines of communication, to be self-reflective about these ruptures within the arts community. I have argued that art can be a catalyst for difficult dialogues and has the ability to change our practices within the creation of culture-based knowledge for generations to come. There is strong BIPOC leadership and we are working collaboratively with artists and arts organizations. And you can see in this episode, we'll focus on some of the incredible work that is happening in the arts. First up, we'll hear from Ravi and the Why Not Theatre in Toronto. I was living and working abroad and theatre for me was always something international. Like I wasn't really exposed to Canadian theatre as it was. And so for me, it was always about multi-languages, multi-cultures, everything colliding. And that was the kind of work I was exposed to and seeing while I was living and working abroad. So when I came to Canada or back home, I was really surprised to see how white it was and how homogenous it was. And I wanted to make a company that, that would actually you know, be the things that I was seeing abroad that was that was exciting about storytelling. And I faced a lot of racism. You know, I'm a South Asian man. I was born in Canada of Indian parents. And a lot of people right away were like, why don't you start a South Asian theater company? And I was like, well, because I'm not South Asian. Like I, I identified mainly as a Canadian, whatever that meant. And, you know, for most of my life, I my culture was always a part of me, but it was always something I hid. Like I had to hide my lunch growing up and I I hid that we celebrated those holidays and, you know, I never, I didn't fully identify with it other than obviously my skin color and my name and, and always my temple friends. And it was a, it was, it was a compartmentalized part of my life. And anyways, I was like, I want to be the avant-garde. Why do I have to be a South Asian artist when all those white people get to be artists? Like I'm the avant-garde. I'm the cutting edge. So I formed this company to try to do that. And basically we do three things, which is we make and tour work that challenges the status quo of what stories are told and who gets to tell them. We share our resources with other artists who tend to be underserved artists to help them tell their stories and tour their work. And then the third thing we do is provoke change in the ecology through removing barriers of access to participation in the arts for artists and audiences. So that's really about making the arts more accessible through innovative models, innovative ticketing to make it more accessible, and just trying to elevate, you know, racialized voices and people to make the arts a more vibrant place. So we've been doing that for a long time. And in the last four years in particular, we've had crazy growth. We're a full team, a full-time team of 10 people now, which has been amazing to grow an organization without a venue like that. And in this particular time, you know, we really had some some hard and good conversations around our role in relationship to the people we serve. Sometimes I just can't believe it. There's so much incredible work going on in the arts with strong BIPOC leadership. As we witness new generations taking up space and having a voice at the table, despite what many organizations claim that they cannot fill high-level roles with BIPOC leaders, 
Ashley explains a little about her start in the arts and how a strong woman of color and a cultural magazine was critical to her development as a creative producer and curator. Yeah, so my um, my practice has always stemmed from my roots in visual arts. So I started at a very young age, so I'm a creative director day to day. I have clients, I have my own small agency called Dope, uh, D period PE, which stands for Diverse Progressive Experiences. And I do, you know, a range of projects, commercial projects, um, from grassroots projects, design, web digital to what you just saw recently with Universal Projects, which was an out-of-home project, a billboard project, and music single release for social. So, you know, I think the two worlds cross over. And I guess how I truly started in it was just by, I, I'd almost say my career is, and my path is by chance, but guided, right? Intuitively guided and, you know, just gui- guided through higher purpose, I believe. You know, I was young and looking at things like Sway Magazine, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Julie, but Sway Magazine was a publication that came out of the Toronto Star and was literally like our essence, our vibe magazine, our only magazine that was showcasing people of color, specifically the Black and Caribbean and African communities here in Canada. And I, I, I was in high school and going into college and remember seeing that and saying, this is where I see myself aligned. This is where I see myself working in the future. Like having that, that publication and that something that's in mass media that I could look to and, and see myself identified. And, and I think I didn't put the pieces together until way later on in my career that I had even started that earlier with the intentions of wanting and, and wanting to do that type of work and seeing myself reflected in what that meant, the meaning and the purpose and the intention that that brought forward from having something like that to look towards. So as fate would have it, when I graduated, I, I a very fluke, but of course, divine intervention experience led me to landing an internship with that publication. And that was thanks to Cheryl Phillips, who was a black woman who was sitting in a very, very high role, maybe the president at the time of at Toronto Star and said there was no identity of any black folks that were working on that publication and brought me in because I saw a young designer who who wanted a chance. So I think that that really spawned a lot of where my work is now. When I think about the potential for new generations who will be able to tell similar stories to Ashley, I can't help but get excited about our future. There are so many new and exciting projects that are happening in Canada and abroad. It has been a great honor to watch and work with Noor as she continues to create exhibitions and critical writing within multiple and embodied perspectives within her academic and curatorial practice. I started curating in 2018, and one of my first projects was at Gallery 1203, which is Body Archives, thinking through what embodied archives and memories can look like, especially through um, identity politics and cultural differences. So the project included 10 artists who were animating differently situated histories through their bodies. And I think that project really sort of shaped my curatorial practice for a bit because it was, you know, like grappling with grappling with like my own cultural difference in Canada as a, as an immigrant immigrant and like a sec- settler of color 
and um, trying to understand the ways in which I could come into community and relationship with other people. So that project was really important in my curatorial practice, really trying to understand what solidarity can look like across different histories and different cultures. And I think that sort of feeling stayed with me for some time. So really like a focus on identity politics and thinking through specific locations and also trying to elevate uh, other artists and curators who are differently situated, but also have a lot of ideas and um, narratives to share. And then I think in the last, I think in the last six months or a year, I think I'm feeling a bit, I, I think it has to do with the um, COVID crisis and climate as well. I think I'm, I'm like, I feel myself um, being more interested, you know, unfilled gaps in history and a bit more like difficult histories and ways in which communities and cultures don't necessarily understand each other. So I think the next few projects I'm going to do, they look at relationality and also like the impossibility of relationality in a more focused way. Um, so I look to Edward Glissant and Paul Gilroy and try to really think about questions like, you know, who has the right to intervene in histories like immigration, but also, um, you know, what happened in Canada in the last 500 years and also different, different movements and interactions. So, yeah, I think the, the major question that's really coming up for me right now is who has the right to intervene as a curator or, or as an artist? And what does intervention look like in like the spatialized format of an exhibition? So for my PhD, I'm looking at Islamic art exhibition history. So how objects from the Middle East, North Africa and Asia came into Western collections and how they were sort of used to regenerate ideas around aesthetics and craft possibilities in Europe. And also I'm interested in how these sort of ideas and this sort of appropriation continues to work in the contemporary era and how artists from these regions and their diasporas are in a way like ethnically marked through ornamentalization that, you know, we have artists who use calligraphy or, you know, different political sort of positions in their work and their work is flattened completely and in a sense ethnically marked that, you know, calligraphy is beautiful, it's ornamental, so the message is completely erased and flattened. And I believe this is very Orientalist, of course, and colonial. Yeah, I'm doing an exhibition at Or Gallery in January, and I'm really excited about it because I've been working with a few Norwegian artists for the last year and talking about differences and gaps in our history um, and also possibilities for understanding and collaboration. So this project takes Glissant's ideas around poetics of relation and tries to sort of build a language around solidarity and across national differences, but also cultural.
So what does it mean to be an immigrant from Pakistan in Canada? And what does it mean to be a refugee in Norway? What are the overlaps and what are, what is the possibility of understanding and what are the limits as well? So I think I'm really excited about the project because it takes the form of a reading group and we're not focused on showing objects, curatorial objects as such, and it'll really give us time to massage out ideas and build relationships. We can see the complexities between the nation-state and the various locations of people coming from different places. These kinds of relationships are critical if we want to move forward to build new ways of knowing and being in the world. As we are experiencing through the podcast series, demonstrating there are international connections that strengthen intellectual and practice-based relationships among nations within North America, Circumpolar, and the Pacific regions, who have links and shared colonial histories. We move to Norway, where we look at the Sami to situate us through the words of PhD candidate and artist Lisa Ravna, who gives us some insight into her experiences and embodied knowledge. For me, it was, you know, my mother would take me to these gatherings of women, Sami women from all over Sami, who would practice Dwekji, which is basically like... You know, it's what you do with your hands. It's Sami aesthetics come being like the material expression of Sami aesthetics and working on that and making clothes or making uh, bags or whatnot. And to, you know, for me, that was, I came into that uh, and felt as if I was in, it was kind of like this, this, it's difficult to describe because it almost was like a feeling of going into a magical realm because you would sit at the feet of these women and they would talk and they would laugh and they would speak your language and they would, you know, yoik, which is sometimes yoik, which is uh, one of the traditional ways of expressing uh, feelings and making music in a Sami context. And it was just this way of this place where you could be Sami and you could be it in a safe spot and you could kind of leave out all of that ugliness that you would face in the Norwegian community. And that was really important. And so I sort of, I, I grew up having this relation to the practice of Dwekji. And then as I got older and I, you know, I started seriously considering what is it that I want to do with my life? What do I want to, what do I want to be? That for me, that was working with history, working with culture. And so through like several uh, roads and, 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 you know, I took some, it took some, t- it, took, it took a little while, but I ended up very much working within the context of museology or the science of museums. Because, I mean, a fact is that no matter which indigenous community you go to in the world today, a lot of the older heritage objects So like a lot of the material culture will be in non-indigenous museums, often very far away from the source communities. This is also the case, you know, this is also the case in in a Sami context. And so eventually I kind of moved because I often like to... So um, I had this conversation once with an academic. Uh, She was talking to me about what is Dwekje. You know, Dwekje is... It's a way of working with your hand, of bringing Sami aesthetics to life. You know, through, you know, you create a material expression of a way of 
perceiving the world. But it's also, it has to do with spirituality. It has to do with, I mean, for me, Dwekta is basically a knowledge system. It is the way that, you know, we teach and learn in our communities. And it holds a lot of the knowledge of our ancestors. And we, you know, we can, we continue bringing knowledge into the practice. And so it becomes a system of knowledge. But this, um, this academic who has worked a lot with indigenous communities told me that, you know, I've always, I've always thought that Guji was the object. So it's what you do. It's the craft. And yeah, it, in, in a non-Samic context, Guji is translated to mean craft. But, you know, and, and yeah, of course, craft is one part of it, but it is so much more. And that just hit me. This, this very, you know, acclaimed academic working with material culture of indigenous people and this lack of, of knowledge about what we're really talking about when we talk and discuss indigenous material culture. So my experience is that very often people from indigenous communities will talk about material culture as if their friends, their teachers, their guides. In Sápmi, for instance, a lot of people talk about objects made from Dutti as elders. So they have a voice. And the thing is that when these objects are removed from the source communities and taken to museums, those voices are silenced. You know, it, it's not about the objects becoming quiet because they still have their voice. It's just a matter of them being removed to such a large degree that we no longer have the opportunity to listen to the objects. And this has been, you know, something that sort of guided how I would work because to me, it's something when I work with the materials that I work with speak to me in a way that we collaborate to make whatever it is we're making. And so I realized, you know, that in this practice, in the practice of Dwekti and within museums, working with old heritage objects, something happens. And, you know, it happens on so many different levels. But essentially what happens is that you reconnect. It can be with your ancestral communities. It can be with your ancestors or it can basically be with knowledge because objects have the ability to teach us. And so that became sort of the guiding, <laughs> um, that sort of guided how I worked with my uh, research, which also, of course, meant that I shifted. I shifted my focus from working within a traditional Western academia or a, or a context of Western academia and moved over to uh, working from a context of indigenous methodology. The ways in which we work and create is critical to how we are part of the world. Mark has a long tradition of finding nuggets of history that demonstrate the underdog or the story untold. He gives us some insight to why it is important to his politics and to his work. My practice is interesting when you ask that question because I never want to limit my style of work to an artist. I always consider myself more of a visual communicator. Growing up, just being an entrepreneur, I'm just adapting to anything that's artistic through designing on a wall, on a piece of paper, to a raw canvas, to now even on merchandising, on clothing. I always felt that any mediums that are out there that people visually can see, I just try to add a, a creative component to it, but also with a creative edge that actually creates the attention. Somebody to have a conversation with. 
but it still has to stay stay true to who I am. I never really wavered my way of, of expression as an artist. I always wanted to impact people's lives in the way of how we're living in today's society because history never repeats itself, right? It's people that repeat history. So I always kind of link the stuff from the past and make it to the present time of what it is today because st we're still facing it. And I always feel like music and like that level of artistry is that whatever you write to sing to, whatever you draw to, it has to speak to the times and make it timeless, right? And so people can always want to wear or have a piece of work in their home that actually can be related to whatever the time is. So on the political end for me, social activism has always been the, my heartbeat for me. I always feel that it's, it's a voice that's not, not talked about. It is talked about, but in different contexts. So I feel that if I can kind of heighten kind of just the, the voice of it in a different way, I think I'm doing my part because all of us have a, a duty to actually speak to something. So I just need to keep that, I think it's that pulse out there in the way of if it's through Black Lives Matter, if it's through, I don't know. There's so many things that are happening that I just feel like if I can lend my hand to it, I have to do my part. That's all. I have to be a service to something like that. Because they never really get highlighted in the right light, right? Funny enough, I was, I'm a prof now, I shared in college. And so, um, Last week was the October the 16th, 1968. It's the 52nd anniversary of the demonstration in Mexico City with three activists, Tommy Smith, which was the first place runner, and Dr. John Carlos, who I worked with. He was a third place runner. But people tend to forget the, the second place runner, which was Peter Norman, the Australian runner. I was also on the podium in solidarity with the, the two Americans and lending his voice in the way of telling that story. And why I say his name, because a lot of people forget about the white guy that's sitting on that podium. They always look at that illustration, that image, and almost they remove they remove him for one, or they always say, why is the white guy here, kind of thing. And I feel like those are the interesting stories that you need to talk about, because why is he there? And when you really investigate who he is and what his contribution was and what he stood for even in, in Australia is it's one of the most amazing stories that needs to be talked about. So I always, as an artist, have to lend my voice into stories like that that's not been talked about, but give a bigger platform to be heard. So anything like those kind of stories, I get inspired by. Because I always want to kind of preserve those stories because they're not, like I said, they never get highlighted. So if I can do my part to kind of create those conversations, I think I'm doing my job. Mark's practice is grounded in community, and this was evident in his work in Nuit Blanche in 2019, which was curated by Ashley. The City of Toronto has had a two-year engagement with Scarborough, which has created a ripple effect that is reverberating in this suburb and more broadly. Ashley explains that she has worked from a particular model of community engagement that is driven outside of academia. I think the ripple effect too was was really attached to the intention and the, and the, the curatorial statement for what Scarborough was supposed to be. And for me, it was supposed to speak to the bodies in the space, reimagine how we experience the spaces that we were in that were part of the zone. So that being the Civic Center, the movie theater, the Cineplex, and inside of the mall, especially the Center Court. And what are the prominent stories that, or what are we really trying to discuss right now? And I think when you look at something like, and I use this one as an example, like one street artist, Duro III, who was celebrating 30 years of graffiti that year, having a chance to tag a building, a political, a political, a government building, the Civic Center, with street names of Scarborough, 
um, which at the time, if you remember, there was a lot of gun violence that was happening in and around the city, and there was particularly a rise in gun violence and just violence and criminal activity in Scarborough at the time. And I remember curating Scarborough and listening to CP24, and, you know, every other day Scarborough was being brought up, street name in Scarborough was being brought up. So the relevance of understanding um, how the space needed to be celebrated and how it needed to, like, you know, I'm from Scarborough, so how we were supposed to walk into that space as soon as you came out, you saw this big Batman spotlight on a 60 by 60 foot tagged, graffiti tagged mural on, on the side of a government building, right? For Nui 2020, I invited Mark and his strong political practice to be showcased into a virtual reality work. This work needed to be slapped on every wall you could find because power to the people is a mantra that should never be forgotten. Mark provides the context of when he created this work. I did this one piece, probably at the same time when Ferguson with Michael Brown, when he was murdered by the police. I kind of get the correlation to that is, again, tying in historical facts was happening, stuff that's already been going on, and something like within the movie scenes, like with, so the illustrations pretty much of Do the Right Thing with Spike Lee, with Rudy Rahim. In that movie, the police officers arrested him and pretty much murdered him by having the, strangling him, and that caused a riot. And so it just prompted in my, in my brain, like, yo, if I can get the coalition of tying in what the movie scene, what Spike captured and what was Ferguson was happening at that time, I did an amazing illustration that I took Rudy Rahim within the same atmosphere of the riot that's happened in Ferguson and placed him in that same space. And then in the background, I have one of the other characters in the movie behind it. I think with the, how I use my technique with news articles and kind of tying a timeline between what's happening in the earlier, say, say in the 60s to something that's currently happening in today, I kind of meshed the two together just to show that the consistency that has nothing has never really changed. And then add those, those images or illustrations on top of that, it really gives us a multi-layer of, of conversation. So that piece for me, I think it's really strong enough that it actually creates this conversation. Another piece that I'm working on, which I haven't shown yet, is I'm doing Fred Hampton, one of the members from the Black Panther Party. He's another member of, of what he stood for in Chicago and how he was able to mobilize different organizations to come into one roof to speak of the oppression that was happening in the United States. And I think for me, like, again, I'm always a fan of actually preserving the stories that people are not talking about and actually give right to that. The politics of representation and who is visible or seen are pressing issues and have come to a head this past year. The continued silencing and destruction of racialized and Indigenous bodies is something we grapple with. For the SAMI and the Office of Contemporary Art Norway, they have just announced that the Nordic Pavilion at Europe's oldest Benali in Venice will be the SAMI Pavilion featuring three SAMI artists. Lisa Ravna explains the impact of this decision. In that transformation is the fact that the Sami people is being recognized as a nation on an international stage, a huge and important international stage. Because we have a tendency to think about nation. That term nation has sort of been 
co-opted by law text to mean a sovereign nation that sort of rules over a, ter- a specific territory. And, you know, that's not the case when you're indigenous. For an indigenous person, sovereignty means something completely different and nation means something completely different. And it's interesting because I had a conversation the other day with a friend who was talking about, and she's had, you know, she's she's one of these really impressive women that sort of had to fight to take back her, her culture and language. And she, she was talking about how annoying it was when people called her Norwegian. And she was like, but I'm not Norwegian, I'm Sami. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I feel you, sister. Yes, because that's the thing. We might have, you know, when our passport may, might say that we are from Norway or from Sweden or Finland or Russia. That doesn't really mean anything because for me, being Sami means that I have a nation and it's the Sami nation. It might not be recognized by law, but for me, that doesn't really That's not what's important. What's important is that I recognize myself as being a part of a nation and that nation is the Sami nation. And having the pavilion then happening like this means that it recognizes those feelings. And I think that's really important because it, it is also something about how it, it in a way enables us to open up a discussion about sovereignty and about nationhood and what does that mean in an indigenous context and how can we make this come across to people that are non-indigenous and make them understand what it means for us and i think that's really important because i think you know referencing back to what i was saying about this green they call it green colonialism which you know green capitalism colonialism because referencing back to that it's it's one way of making people understand how truly horrific what is happening right now is because when you You know, one of the first things ha- that happens in a process of colonization is is the alienation between people and land, right? So to explain it in a very concise way, if you look at Sa- the Sami people, you know, our language is a uh, case language, which means that we um, we have cases that we put our words in. And so Sami and Sami is the same word, only in different cases. What that means basically, is that as a people, we are the land and the land is the people. But during the colonial process, what happened was that the Sami became the laps, right? So, which is a really derogatory word. And I, I, I hate to use it myself, but just to, it's a really ugly word. word. And our land, Sami, became either Norway, Sweden, Finland, or Russia. And so, When we talk about sovereignty, these are the issues we are talking about. And it's, you know, it's happening everywhere. And I know, for instance, in, in you know, in, in Turtle Island, <laughs> to say, to use the correct term, in Turtle Island, a lot of, you know, issues with, with fracking and these pipelines is happening. And they are equally as harm, harmful as what we're seeing happening in the, in the zombie homeland. And, you know, it all goes to show that this process of trying to alienate us from our land is still happening. Because colonialism, you know, the strategies of colonialism and the colonialism that happens today might not happen in the same shape and form that we are used to reading about in history books, but it happens. The governments has just, you know, they're today they're just more clever at disguising it as something else. And, you know, 
As we continue to move forward in this new era, we need to unpack concepts of allies, accomplices, and how we work together to create more space and continue to be in leadership roles into the future. For me, this is imagined in many different models moving forward, and Ravi expands on the work that they're doing. So we do, we work a lot with Black artists, Indigenous artists, and in particular, deaf artists. And we were asking ourselves, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, you know, how are we how are we allies? How are we enacting still, even as good people, we still have ways of working that are anti-Black and, and anti-Indigenous? And how do we work and how can we change the way we work that address those behaviors in us and those biases in us? And how can we also try to work with artists to bring them more towards the center of this organization and, and the center of the work that we create and do that in a responsible and healthy way. And so we've been just having really in-depth conversations. We've we've been trying to think about power within the organization as well and redistributing power. So the best way to describe that is we looked at the traditional organizational chart of an organization and the hierarchy of that and identified how it causes bottlenecks, hoarding of power and, you know, white supremacy ways of thinking and, and doing and being and have been actively trying to restructure what that looks like in a more, um, let's say, a circular way, in a more organic way, rather than that kind of inorganic organizational structure. Um, we've been doing a lot of facilitations with outside folks around values in particular and how to hold ourselves accountable to our values. And then we've launched these programs specifically for BIPOC females, which have been mentorship programs with international artists to help them get access to the highest level of thinking uh, in the field. So be it in design, in directing, in playwriting, all the leadership positions in the arts. And we're moving towards launching a program specifically for directors and specifically for cultural leaders so that, you know, because we've identified and we've seen for so long that there's so such limited access to learning about that in a way that empowers you and in, in ways that makes you feel like you can actually do it. And so we really want to create ways to just open up those channels and provide access in a national way and uh, that does it in a way that actually could potentially impact future opportunities. I was just always part of larger conversations than the one that was happening in small Toronto or small, smaller, even smaller than Toronto is like smaller Toronto theater. You know, like everything becomes so niche and insular and that being part of the international for me is about realizing that this is a much larger conversation. There are far more allies and advocates and accomplices out there. And, you know, we want to build those networks so that we realize we're not alone. For artists, they have moved to more global and local connections to bring forth the importance of their politics and their artwork. Mark tells us a bit about how he works towards the idea of unity to battle oppression. Yeah, it's all what it is for me. It's, it's, I just love the level of collective unity in the way of all people of color coming together and understanding that we're all facing the same level of oppression. So my illustration kind of assimilates, assimilates, it's a symbol of unity of all of us. And uh, what I love about how I create my, my branding or um, the logos is that I like, to, I like to do a play on things that are existing, that people see on, but do a different twist off of it. And again, it's the level of reaching people in a different 
frame of mind they want to have that as a t-shirt to find art i still have the ability to actually create that and i'm all about community so with having that image on a virtual aspect which i'd never seen before was pretty crazy to me and then um last year in scarborough when i did the i mean the new blanche in scarborough where i, where I reside and uh again community is this always been my my striving way of telling stories is finding community people who are making a contribution to the to scarborough it's great because you, you bring people to a space they could actually see the people that they, they may know of but know a little bit more context of what they've done pretty much again it's a stimulus that gets me going like tying stories that make sense so community people people of color that all of us can all can come together and mobilize and make an impact of, of what society is today is my my inspiration and then following up with this uh, project that i've been working on uh when the toronto raptors were, were in the bubble uh, myself at miami were selected to actually create merchandise for the raptors to um create a, a stronger platform of expressing what's happening around the world so having ourselves as artists to lend our hand and helping that was another major accomplishment to see and now to see what the Raptors kind of doing with the designs, we'll, we'll see what happens in November. But overall, like just to be a part of those kind of movements or opportunities, it's, it's been great. Um, allyships, I, I think, based on what's been going on around the world, I, I think that um, people with privilege are seeing that this, this is their time in a way of creating strong allyships, but authentic ones. That's the ones that just, they, they feel guilt that now giving people of color an opportunity but actually seeing that this is the, this is really we have to make a shift or a change and um really realize that we all are in this together and um i just go back to the the moment of the 1968 olympics again i i, I learned this story because it's such a beautiful story like um the australian runner peter norman his allyship of his solidarity was something that was organically obeying in the way that he wanted to do it and so I just feel like when it's in your nature that you feel that you have to do something of, of, of again, being white and uh, knowing that your privilege is a way of helping, you just got to do it naturally, right? Don't allow it to be forced, but feel that it's in your conscience to actually step up. And so to answer your question, I'm actually seeing it happen now. You see it on TV now. You've seen people getting a little bit more opportunity, but I always question is there an agenda behind it? But I think there's genuinely the people realize that this is the time to actually make some shift. Based on COVID, I think we need to actually start adapting and helping each other out. I'm slowly seeing it happening, even for myself, like having the opportunity, like even going back to Sheridan College and becoming a, a prof is an opportunity, right, that maybe I would never have gotten, but maybe based on the climate of what's going on, it, it's happening. Who's to say? But um. It's, it's there, and it's, I think people are recognizing it. So um, I'm just kind of just being hopeful to see how long this lasts, right? We can see the critical moment is right now. We need to strike while the iron is hot. There is no waiting or knowing if the moment will change, and Ashley provides us some insight into the current climate. Okay, allies, right. Because there's pros and cons to it, right? So. You know, if I if I look at the last 10 to 12 years of my practice, great, I'm still able to break through and do some amazing projects. I think in the last year, I think I've been able to do a lot more with more money. So I'm not, and a lot of that is coming from allyship and institutions and brands and 
leaders and creative people um, who are non-black or non-BIPOC who are in leadership positions saying, oh, look, we did do that, right? We did miss that mark. And I'm not upset with them giving the space and the money and the time and the recognition and, the, and re- recognizing the value. Many times I didn't have to beg for these things, but I don't think that they were as supported as, as now. So I'm not, I'm not tired of having the opportunities. I'm not tired of the wallets opening up. I am a little tired of seeing oversaturation now and knowing that it, it's linked to it, some of it's genuine and some of it is, you know, filling, filling a clause, a diversity clause. And I think that you don't just put some money out there and say, yeah, we, we donated $50,000 to Black Legal Action Center, did our part, move on. Or we put up this, this Black woman on a billboard, uh, we did our part, move on. I am tired of seeing that and I am tired of seeing... And it, it, I'm a little annoyed uh, with seeing the lack of responsibility from some brands and institutions because really that that is one of 10 steps. And really, you got to start with who you're employing, who you're really trying to um, pay and give opportunities to on a longer term goal. But never, nonetheless, every all of us should be jumping on the opportunity. The time is now. The more you're in, the more you do. If this is to die down, who knows, right? Like we see that things have gotten quieter, but if this is to die down, you might have you might have executed one of the largest projects of your career because of this this window that we're in. And I'm still a person who's about opportunity. And I think that everybody who's been busting their ass for the last five, 10, 20 years for that opportunity, whether it should have been five years ago or it's now you still take it. Like I said, we need to act now. Seize the moment. We don't know if it will last or how it will shift again. I do know I really enjoy hearing how Ravi talks about how this impacts BIPOC women differently and the importance of our work and our voices being heard. And so often we're meant to feel like we're alone in the work that we do. And it's just not the truth. We, we are strong and we're so many of us. And the more we can kind of make those connections, the, the better I think it is. To the question about accomplice, I think that's something like a really, been a really, for me on a personal level, a real interesting thing for me to think about because I have to say like, as a, as a person of color, as a person with brown skin, understanding and recognizing that I've experienced racism and that that racism is far different from Black and Indigenous peoples and the systems that have been created to really remove those people. And understanding the nuance of that, in a way I would say has been easy because I I get that, or I shouldn't say it's easy. That's a journey I've been on and I really understand that. What's been challenging in the accomplice thing for me is knowing when to speak knowing what space to take and how to find the right way to use the power and privilege I have to provide and create the opportunities and to share that power and privilege or to give away that power and privilege and questioning at all moments what my right and place is to do that. And that has been a conversation I've been so fortunate to have a number of just, you know, guides, I would say, and people I can continually dialogue with through the mistakes of that and the successes of that. And I'm just grateful to kind of constantly have people I can seek out to to advise on that so that it's done responsibly and right. 
that comes a lot from my wife in particular, who's you know a woman of color. And I see, I see how the world treats her. I see, I, I, I am on the receiving end because obviously we share our lives together, and I, I'm on the receiving end of how invisible she is made to be, and how ferocious and accomplished you know her spirit is, and what she's able to do, and how she doesn't always have a platform to do that and in particular in this time because of the journey of that in our eight years of our relationship but then also in this time it becomes even more apparent when as soon as everything hit all the tables were filled with of decision making were the same people at the tables talking about how important change was but again those same invisible voices weren't being given space and i think that the burden that i think Black women and Indigenous women in particular have to carry of not, just for so long. Y'all have been saying this. You have been advocating and saying this, and and that I think for me, really seeing and hearing how that voice has just not been listened to and silenced. So how do we now center those voices and provide them the opportunities to be able to lead? Because for so long we just haven't. <laughs> um. I don't know. I feel like I kind of keep coming back to we can't really move them until we've really dealt with this. And how are we really going to be different on the other end of this conversation? So we've been doing a lot of work to affect change in our personal selves. If we don't change the process, I think we might do a disservice to to this moment. Because even now, like I'm talking to, we're in conversations with a number of Black artists in particular, Indigenous artists in particular. And I'm I'm super conscious of like, okay, well, how are these conversations different from the ones we were in before, and how are these ones going to be honoring this this shift that we're talking about, and what are the ways to really do that in a way that is going to be really different, so we have really different results, because it's on us to make sure we don't go back. I really hope we learn from this moment and take time and energy and work that is needed to not go backwards, but to move forward with BIPOC voices leading. Hmm, so I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say Chimigwich, Marcy, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. (laughs) 